0: Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. We've been talking about why we're here. And we're here, uh, as we've learned, I'm going to move ahead in some of the scriptures we've gone over so many times. Why are we here? Why are we here as an individual? Why are are we alive? Why am I still alive? Why are you here? Why has God brought us together? Why has this church existed for 36 years and God's brought it through all kinds of trials and troubles and difficulties and also wonderful times, blessed us? Why? Why are we here? Why am I here? Why are you here? Well, we looked at Mark chapter 16 and we saw that Jesus explained to him, the disciples, why the church is here, the only reason it's here. And he said, this is what you are to do. You are to to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And then he went on and talked about what's going to follow that. But we're just focusing on that. So our call, our purpose is to go, not sit here, go into all the world and preach, declare the gospel And what we're learning about now is we're learning on the part of what is the gospel. It's good news. The word gospel literally means good news. And we've asked the question, is it really good news to us? Because if it was really, really good news to us and impacted us, we wouldn't be quiet about it. We saw that when Jesus did good things for people in in his walk on this earth, that they couldn't keep quiet about it. Even when he told them to not tell anybody, they ran right out and told people. They couldn't contain it. We saw the disciples in the early days when they were commanded to not speak in his name and they said, whether to obey you or not, you decide as whether it's good or not. We just can't help but declare what we've seen and heard. And then the question is, how come we're not like that? How come we can't keep our mouth shut about Jesus and what he's done for us? Now, there are people that are like that, but that's because the, the good news is fresh to them. In some cases, it's because we knew it at one point, it was real to us, but we've just been around so long, we've kind of lost touch with it. We know intellectually it's good news, but the experience of it isn't there anymore. Or some of us may never have experienced it. We may be saved, we may be in the kingdom of God, but we've never really experienced the goodness of God's love, His grace. And so we go on and try to do the things we're supposed to do without being touched by His grace and His love and His goodness. So that's what we're looking for. That's where we're t- moving to. We could talk about evangelism. We could talk about going and sharing the good news. But if we're, our hearts aren't stirred and motivated, what we're going to do is do an op- perform an obligation, and that won't touch people's lives. We ought to be so full of the good news. We ought to be so moved by it that people will come around and say, what is it? about you? What's different about you? That's when we know it's beginning to flow out of us. So we looked in, in Romans chapter six, 1, verse 16, which says that, that, that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he goes on and explains in verse 17 why. Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There it is. The righteousness of God is revealed. So what we're looking at is is if the gospel's power is because it reveals the righteousness of God, we're spending a little time now looking at the righteousness of God. What is it that the gospel reveals that's so powerful about it that changes people's lives? And What we've begun to look at is there's two sides to the righteousness of God. Most of us are familiar with the second side. And by the way, the, the, the book of Romans is an exposition. It is a, it is a treatise on, 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 on the good news. It is a treatise on the doctrine of the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther got a hold of in his cell and awoken, awakened him to the, 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 what birthed the, the Protestant Revolution, which is that we are saved by grace, by faith in God's grace, and not by our works. And that came by reading Romans and he discovered that there was a power in this gospel that he was missing. And what he saw was that it reveals the righteousness of God and the the second half of the book of Romans talks about the righteousness of God which is that God has given us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. That's Jesus. He took your sin and my sin upon Himself on that cross and then He gave us His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, in Him. So what He's done is He's given us His righteousness as a free gift. When you come to Christ, when you confess Him as your Savior and as your Lord, He gives you His righteousness. But that doesn't mean anything to us until we have an understanding of what His righteousness is is. So we've been given something that in most cases we don't know why we needed it and we don't know what it is, but we're glad we have it and that's good. It's kind of like this. Suppose you were in, in military training in the Air Force and one of the phases of training is they teach you what a parachute is. Well, we all have some idea what a parachute is, but they show you how it's folded, they show you how to wear it, they show you how to pull the ripcord when you pull out, and how to land. They teach you all that in a classroom, and that's nice. You get in an airplane, and you know there's a parachute here somewhere, and that's nice. But you go on about your everyday business knowing that there's a parachute there. But suddenly the pilot comes on and says, we've got a problem. Number one engine's on fire, number two engine's gone. We're going down reach for your parachute. Suddenly your parachute that you learned in class, and it was nice to study, suddenly your parachute that you knew is somewhere in this airplane, takes on a different meaning. Because now you see what the real value and the purpose of that parachute is. Because it really doesn't mean anything to you until you're going to land without the plane. (laughs) And so you scramble to find your parachute... And you put your parachute on trying to remember last Sunday in church when you were taught how to put... No, excuse me, in class when you were taught how to put it on. You're trying to remember. What did they say? Do I count to ten or hundred? What is it? And you're trying to remember because you're frantically trying to... This parachute now has a value to and a meaning to you. But that's what it was intended for all along. And the righteousness of God is a parachute. Not to get you safely on the ground but to bring you safely into the kingdom of God and to rescue you from the ravages and the fires of hell. It is a parachute that you've been given that we don't appreciate because we've lost touch with what we're saved from and what we're going to. And so the other side of the righteousness of God, the first side that we need to dwell on, we need to go back and remind it of, is what is God's righteousness? What does it mean? We look back in the first chapter of Genesis and the second chapter and we saw how God originally created man into this beautiful, wonderful relationship, perfect communion with him. Man stood before God with no, with no shame, no guilt. He didn't, have in, he didn't have any clothes on and he wasn't ashamed or afraid. He was just perfectly open before God. There was this, what's called Paradise. And then Satan comes in and we saw that the temptation that he brought in there, if you boil it all down, was to take their own lives into their own hands. And then we saw that in God's eyes, that's rebellion. Because to take our life into our own hands is to establish ourselves as God as opposed to our Creator as God. And then we read on a little further in Romans chapter 1 where we saw that the righteousness the anger of God the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we saw why because they worship the creation instead of the creator. So man is a creation by God, God is his creator, and God has endowed us with certain things, but one of the things God did not endow us with is the ability to handle truth and right from wrong. Good from evil. That's why he said, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I'll handle the knowledge of good and evil for you. All you've got to do is just follow me, serve me, and obey me, and I'll handle the knowledge of good and evil for you. As the elders were praying over me this morning, I saw suddenly the Spirit of God showed me an example of why we can't handle the knowledge of good and evil. One of the primary doctrines in the world today doctrine is not a good word one of the primary uh, focuses of the world today teachings of the world today is toleration we need to tolerate one another and the Lord spoke to me while they were praying over me he says toleration is man's replacement for what I gave you which is to love we love one another we don't need to tolerate we love one another but toleration is a selfish substitute for the commandment to love because the essence of love is i do what's best for you it, without regard to what it costs me. Toleration is i'm going to let you do what you want to do so i can do what i want to do. I'm going to let you be what you want to be and i can be what i want to be. I'm going to let you choose what you are and what your life cuz basically i'm going to let you be your god and i'm going to be my god. Don't interfere with my kingdom and i won't interfere with your kingdom. I'll recognize your kingdom's right to exist and you recognize my kingdom's right to exist. That's what toleration is. It lifts self it lifts self above everybody else, and it doesn't look that way because I'm letting, I'm being very tolerant and accepted. I am as long as you let me be what I want to be. But love, the commandment that we're given, is to be willing to sacrifice what I want to be for what you want to be, what you are, what you need. Paul uses an example of that because one of the issues that would come up in the church in the first century, especially in the churches that were in those areas that had been pagan, they were not Jewish, they were, they were Greek, and they would get saved, and they were all raised in temples where they, where they basically practiced idolatry and sacrificed animals to idols, and now they would come into somebody's home and there would be steak laid out that they'd grilled. Well, no, that's not what they did, but in our modern terms... They have a barbecue, and the question would will come up is, where did you get that meat? Did you get it at the, at the meat market, or did you get it from the temple, Diana, where they sacrificed it? And Paul says, I've learned from my understanding of grace, as long as I've blessed it and acknowledged that this food has come from God to me, it doesn't matter where it's come from. But I realize this, if my brother sitting at the table ask me, Do you know where that came from? Is it okay to eat it? And I realize that his conscience is going to be violated. If he eats that meat, then I won't exercise my privilege for the sake of my brother's conscience. That's love. Love isn't looking for what I get. Love isn't looking for where we get along. Love is looking for what do you need and whatever that costs me to help you get that. That's what I'm willing to do. Isn't that what God did? He's the definition of love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in God's kingdom, the operating principle is that kind of love. When you're operating in that kind of love, you don't need toleration. It's love. It's another level. And so because man can't grasp that concept of love, because it's contrary to my kingdom. Because everything in this world ultimately has as its root self. And that's the root of all sin. So that's what we saw. Then we went over to Romans 5, and we'll pick up here again, because I want you to understand this. We'll start in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, sin was not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of of Adam. Here's what that's saying. What Paul is saying here is from the time of Adam's fall, his rebellion, until the law was given to Moses, sin was in the world because all were sinning. And remember, the root of sin is self. We were selfish. They were selfish from Adam right on down the line until Moses. We're not going to say whether he was selfish at this point or not. But my point is this, And so there was a result, sin was in the world, and because sin was in the world, death is the result of sin. But the sin was not imputed to them because they had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. The one who is to come, of course, was Christ. What is the sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, or the same kind of sin as Adam. Here's what it is. Adam violated a known command. In Genesis chapter 2, I think it's around verse 12 or 18, somewhere in there, God says, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. The woman, Paul writes to Timothy, was deceived. But the man wasn't deceived, he outright sinned by breaking a known command. And you may say, well, what's the difference if they died anyway because they were sinning? The difference is you could not repent, you can't get free from sin if you don't know what rule you broke. I shared with you last week that when we finally learned as I were with our first children, we weren't saved when they were born, and so I had to grow and learn what it meant to be a f- godly father, but what I finally realized is I was responsible for establishing the discipline in the house, and God taught me that means you need to have some rules, and to be fair, you need to tell them what the rules are, so I posted the Ten Commandments of our house on our refrigerator, and if they broke one of them before, before the discipline was administered, we would go and look at which one they broke, so they understood what they were being disciplined for, because the idea of discipline is to bring correction, not punishment. Punishment is to get back at somebody for something. Discipline is to change the behavior so they don't do it again. And so this is what Paul's talking about here. Because in order for God, remember everything God did from Genesis 3.15 on, is to redeem man out of this mess that he's created. And in order to redeem him, he has to know he needs a redeemer. He has to know he needs to be saved. He has to know he needs a parachute. And if man doesn't know what he's done wrong, he has nothing to repent of. He has, nothing to, he has no reason to know that I've got to make some changes. I just know we're dying and that's just part of life as we die. I heard somebody the other day in kind of a testimony of what life is like. is what it's like if you're not saved. Life is full of problems you learn how to overcome and then you die. Isn't that exciting? What, you know, what, what a vision of life. But without Christ, that's it. That's it. There's no hope. There's nothing beyond this life. And so what Paul is explaining here is, and this is important for what we're looking at now, so go with me now to, to, Roman, go with me now to Exodus chapter 20, because this is where we left off last week. Because up until this point in God, man's walk with God, man's, ever since Adam, man, everyone sinned because what? They've taken their own life into their own hands. They're selfish. We're all self-centered. We're all selfish, self-reliant. And as a result, death is in the world because we've all sinned and rebelled against God. But unless God tells us what rules we've broken, unless God tells us what He expects, there's no way that we can realize what we have to do. So God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, about three months or so into their journey, and leads them down into the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula where there's a Mount, Mount Sinai, calls Moses up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19 and says, I want you to go down and tell the people to consecrate themselves for three days and at the end of that third day they're to gather around this mountain and I'm going to come down on it because I want them to see me. I want them to see what I'm like so that they will reverence me and worship me and not sin. God came down on the mountain, they gathered around, they saw the thunder and lightning and they heard the, th- the, tr- the ground shook so much they became afraid and they ran back into their tents and they told Moses, you go hear what he has to say and come tell us and then we will obey it. Here again is man exercising his own judgment over and against God's commandment. God told him what to do. God says, you stay at the foot of this mountain. You need to see what I'm like. Hear my voice. And therefore, then you will not sin. And they substituted their own judgment for what they needed. Their own idea of right and wrong. Their own idea of good and evil. And the result is, they did sin. And they couldn't get out of it. So God calls Moses back on the mountain. And he begins to give him what we call the ten Commandments. Now, now uh, it was a year or so ago. John Zabrowski, I know he's here this morning. He gave me a, a cartoon. I want him to put it up. Can you put that up now? Because this is how we interpret it. I know they had it. All right. If you can't do it, that's fine. It was cute, but it wasn't instructional. <laughs> I'll read you the caption. It's Moses on the mountain with his Ten Commandments, and it says, talking back to God, I'll try, but it's not going to be an easy pitch. <laughs> and that's still true today. <laughs> so let's go through these. So, what God does is He gives them Ten Commandments, God writes them with His own finger. On the tablets of stone, imagine that! What a precious relic that would be, to have something in God's own handwriting. But there's an authority with that. God's words are not like your words and my words. God doesn't just say things, and His words fall down. His words are powerful. His words are what create the power that created the universe. And his word spoken, his word written is powerful to the extent that we'll receive it and allow it to operate in our lives. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13 when he talks about the parable of the sower. It also says in John chapter uh, 14 when he says, 15, excuse me, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, if they live in you, whatever you ask will be done for you. The power of those words will come out of you. So God gives these Ten Commandments, not suggestions, not good ideas, Ten Commandments. And as I mentioned to you last week, these must be the most dangerous words in the world because we're not allowed to put them in public. They're so dangerous. They're banned. They're like banned in Boston. They're banned all over our public places. They're banned in courts. They're banned in places of public assembly because they must be that dangerous, and they are. They're dangerous to sin because they reveal it. Remember Jesus said the wrath of God is revealed against men who who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth in order to be able to practice my unrighteousness. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want to see the truth. I don't want to be reminded of the truth because then I'll be uncomfortable in my unrighteousness. So the way I'll do it is I'll just get rid of the words. But the commandments are still there. So we began to look at these last week. So let's start again. Chapter 20, verse 1. The Lord spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what we looked at last week was we saw God's talking about, this is about who He is. His right to make commandments. I am. When Moses... When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and God told him to go back and and he was going to use him to deliver the children of Israel, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And he just said, you say I am. Yeah, I am who? I am that I am. God just am. He is the word in Hebrew actually means the self-existent one. He didn't come from everybody else. Everything else came from him, but he has no beginning, no origin. He is the bang. He's where the big bang came from. He is the source of everything. He just is. So it starts by introducing, I am. And what I am is, I am the Lord. Supreme. There's none above me. You're God. I am not just a God. I am God to you. I am a God who's in covenant with you. I am the God who belongs to you. And as a result, I brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Now, to what that means to us today, Egypt in the Bible represents the, the world, the sin of the world, the systems of the world that you and I were in bondage to. We were caught in sin. We couldn't get out of it. And you may have been able to overcome bad habits. You may have been able to overcome practices. You may have been made to be, either, you know, the best person in your house or in your workplace. You may have been somebody that everybody looked up and said, wow, what a wonderful person, but you were still selfish and you were still self-centered, and you were still self-reliant, which means you were still in rebellion against God in His eyes. Now in your neighbor's eyes, in your family's eyes, you may have been wonderful, but we're not looking in your neighbor's eyes or your family's eyes. The righteousness of God requires us to look at us the way God sees us without Christ. And that's in rebellion and sin. I am the Lord, your God. Now the reason for seeing this, remember, is so we'll treasure the parachute that we've been given. The good news is we've been redeemed from this. But it's not good news until you understand what you've been saved out of, what you've been redeemed from. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 2, verse 3. As a result, you shall have no other gods before me. And we've talked about what a God is. A God is anyone or anything that you look to for your security, for your identity, for your welfare, for your comfort. It's anything that you look to as your source of anything is your God. And God's commandment is you shall have no other gods, no other source. God will use people. He'll use your job. He'll use people to comfort you. He'll use people to assist you. But He's your source. And God will orchestrate your life so people will come and go and sometimes jobs will come and go so that you know that He is the source. Elijah, I believe it was, that when he ran from, the, from, from, um, from Jezebel, God ha- he, he hung out by a brook, Cherith, and God fed him by a raven bringing him the food. And all of a sudden the brook dries up so he has nothing to drink and the raven stops bringing water. And God speaks to him. See, Moses, or Elijah wasn't worshipping the brook and he wasn't worshipping the raven. God was using those. He worshipped Jehovah as his source and as God. And so God directed him to a woman of Zarephath and he went to her and God used her, this woman who was about to starve to death. God used her just to show him, I can use a raven, I can use somebody that has nothing, I can use them to provide your needs because I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So we have to be careful, our job can be our God, our spouse can be our God, the very one He gave us to. Children can be our God. I've heard this testimony over and over again. Of people even here, and you're not here today because it obviously doesn't apply to you. People that came here that could not, they couldn't get pregnant, they couldn't have any children. And the people in the church prayed for them and believed with them, and they got pregnant, had a child, and never saw them again. Not just that, jobs, other situations where we begin to put them above God. I'll tell you where it begins to press in on us our activities, Little League. Oh, oh I better go over here. <laughs> that didn't go over well over there. All the activities that our children like to be involved in or we like to be involved in, and they come up on a Sunday, what are you going to do? You have choices to make. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? do? We chose to teach our children that although you, they love sports, they were involved in sports, we put God first. You know what I found out? They had favor on those teams. They had favor on those teams. And I've heard testimonies of people that made that choice and God elevated them. Because you put God first and I'm telling you there's no one that can put you first like God. I've watched that happen. I've had God put me in places. The fact that I'm even here is an incredible story of how I made a choice to put God first and allow Him to do with me what He wanted to do and He has put me in places and situations beyond what I ever could have imagined but the key is you've got to put Him first He's got to be there's got to be no other God before Him no other God before Him Verse 4, "'You shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your, am, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments.'" You shall not, go back to verse 4, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. And then don't go there, but the next verse says that you shall not bow to them and worship them. What's this all about? Well, when you make something, you become its creator. God made you and God made me. And therefore we worship Him ultimately as our Creator. He's the potter, as the prophets referred used as the example, and we're the clay. But anything that man makes, anything that man makes is subject to what we make it into. And what was happening, of course, is the, the, they had been brought out of Egypt, was, had thousands of gods that they worshipped, and each one had a statue, an idol. They were, a lot of them were goats, cats... There were specific animals that they saw were endowed with supernatural powers and that spirits inhabited and they they would make images of them and as they've opened up the Pharaoh's tombs they find they're filled with these statues of different animals that they worship, the animal. Well, remember, we saw in Romans chapter 1 that what the root of unrighteousness is is man worships the creation, not the Creator. And so an idol is worshiping something that man has made, fashioned in his own way. Now, I didn't, you know, if you make an idol out of gold or out of, out of pottery or something like that, you didn't make the gold and you didn't make the pottery, but we fashioned it into the image that we chose to fashion it into. And the idea that man changes, makes, forms the image and then worships it is we're really worshiping something we've created so we're still in charge. That's not worship. Say, so, well, I don't have idols in my house. I don't have them on my dashboard. I don't have them in my front yard. But we can still have idols in our life. It's more subtle. It's interesting because back in, in a little later on in the story, when, when they, God gives them, calls Moses back up on the mountain to give them the, the pattern for the tabernacle, God says, you better go back down there because while He's giving them these commandments, they're, they're, they're breaking the first one. They've taken the gold that God gave them to build the Ark of the Covenant, the gold that God gave them to build the Holy of Holies that God was going to come down and dwell in. They're taking that gold and they're fashioning it into a golden calf, which is an image of something that was worshipped in Egypt. But here's the root of what they're doing wrong they're calling it, if you go back and look at it, they're not calling it Baal, which was the Old Testament name for Satan. They're not worshiping Satan in their minds. They're not... It says, and this is Elohim. This is God who brought us out of Egypt. So they did not intend to worship Satan or some demonic force. What they did is they took and made a physical image that they could see and they call that Jehovah God and that's the danger we can fall into it's when we start making God into whom we want Him to be and not worshiping Him as He really is. When we Look at God as a buffet or a smorgasbord where we get to pick the parts of God we like and I don't want to look at the parts we don't like. You notice in most buffets they put the desserts at the end so that you go and get the things that are good for you along the line and get them at the end. But you can, in a buffet, you can skip to the end. You can go right to the important stuff and say, I want to make sure I have room to eat all this, so I'm going to eat this first, and then I'll get to the greens and the meat and the potatoes later on. We choose what we want to do, and the problem is we do that with God sometimes. We have favorite scriptures, and then we have ones we don't like to read. Remember, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we're all susceptible to this because God is so enormous. It's hard for our little tiny pea brains to get wrapped around Him. We can't. But the Spirit of God's been given to us to reveal Him, to reveal who God is and what God's like, and He uses this word... So you've got to decide the only thing you're going to know about God is what this Word says about Him, not what you like or what you don't like, not what your mother told you was like, not what anybody else tells you He's like. Even if I tell you what He's like and it's not in here, don't accept it. Because this is the only thing God's given us and the Spirit of God that God's given to us. This Word is the only thing God's given to us along with His Spirit to tell us what He's like, what He's truly like. And so idolatry can be when we make our own image of what God is like All right, let's move on because we could spend a year in any one of these verse 7 you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain see, without going into these a little bit it's very easy to read down them well, I don't do any of those I know He's my God I know He's delivered me out of the bondage of sin I don't practice idolatry I don't take the name of the Lord God in vain so I'm fine All right, then we don't need Jesus you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain I was always kind of raised to think taking the Lord's name in vain means to swear and use his name in in swearing but that's not what the word in vain means that's included in there that would be he would say thou shalt not swear using the Lord's name but that's not what it says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God, and again, it's your God, covenant God, in vain. What does it mean? The word in vain, first of all, to understand that, you've got to recognize that in the Old Testament especially, someone's name was significant. They would give a name to a child based on that child's, what that child's position was in the family, what that child's destiny was, and they would give a name to that child based on that child's character and personality. One of the things that God did with Abram when God appeared to him and brought him into a covenant relationship is he changed Abram's name to Abraham, which meant father of many nations. The name God gave him reflected the destiny and the call and the personality and the person that that God was making Abraham to be. So the name you call somebody in the Old Testament was significant now in vain in vain means to treat as worthless or as common or as to not recognize the true value to con- to consider something in vain is to is to is to hold as having no value to be common and to not recognizing the true intrinsic value of what it is Va- vanity just means that it has no effect it's just it's nothing so to take the name of the Lord our God in vain is to treat His name as if it doesn't have the proper value that it to have because His name represents who He is. Israel was so conscious of this that one of His names, which was Yahweh, which the English version is Jehovah, they wouldn't pronounce. They would do like they would do in some movies, at they don't do very much anymore. Is an expletive deleted. They, just would, they would skip over his name. Why? Because they did not believe, because he was so holy, they were afraid to pronounce his name. That name, that covenant name of God. Yahweh. Now what do we do? We just throw God around like it's common. Oh God, I've got to be late. But even more so than that, We talk about God without recognizing His holiness, who He really is, who we're talking about. Remember, we're looking at these because when we're measured against what these really mean, we all fall woefully short. We're looking at what God's requirement is, what God's rules are, without Christ. What we're measured against if we're going to stand before God in our own righteousness, this is what our righteousness looks like in God's eyes. And by the way, in God's kingdom, if you violate one of these once, that's it. It's not like, well, I got nine out of ten today. I did pretty good. If you ever violate one of these once, you're unrighteous in God's eyes. We're talking about on your own. Before God, what your righteousness and what my righteousness are like compared to God's righteousness. And this is why God was giving this com- these commandments to Moses so the people would understand. And we'll look at this a little later on in Romans. So the people would understand what their righteousness was like on their own. How well they would fare before God if they stood in their own self-reliance, in their own holiness, and their own righteousness because this is God's... you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain using his name as a common part of our vocabulary oh God is taking it in vain not regarding the one to whom we're referring making meaningless our promises to him Jesus says in the New Testament version of this Jesus says whatever you ask in my name I will do Whatever you come to the Father, in my name I will do. I won't ask for a show of hands because I give everyone a chance to lie today. But how many of you have ever prayed something in His name and it didn't happen? Yeah, we all have. Why? Either God's word's true, or, or, or if His word's true, then there's something wrong with how I pray. What I began to realize is we throw the name of Jesus around the same way. It's a common end to a prayer. Isn't that what the Bible says? You shall end your prayer with in Jesus' name. Isn't that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It says whatever you ask in His name. But we say prayers and we kind of tack it on at the end, and oh, in Jesus' name. That's really taking His name in vain. There's great power in that name. There's great authority in the name. And the reason I believe that we don't see more results by praying in His name is we don't value that name. That name's highly valued in heaven. The name of Jehovah is highly valued in heaven. But how highly valued is it in my life and in your life? How highly valued is the name Jesus in my life? Does it just roll off my lips without really thinking who He is? I able to come and sing songs to Him in church and, and, and not have a true appreciation for who He is? I mean, I know we all know who He is, but where is my relationship with Him such that His name stirs something in me when I hear it or when I speak it? This is what he's getting at. This is what he's getting at. Let's go look at the next one. Let's go down to. Um, oh, this is a good one. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath. Let's face safe here because you're all here. Okay. That was supposed to be funny. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it and made it holy.'" Now, it's interesting because I think we've often had the attitude, well, the Sabbath was under the law, therefore we're not subject to it. But go with me to Genesis chapter 2. We may come back here, but Genesis chapter 2. We'll take a look at an interesting verse here. Genesis 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day the Lord ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done and the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made God established the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2 God did finished his work in 6 days and on the seventh day he rested now, God didn't rest because He was tired. It was not like at the end of the... Coming, you know, now 4.30 on, on the sixth day, say, oh man, this creating stuff is hard work. Oh, I think I'm about done. I'm going to take a break tomorrow. Now nothing's hard for God. Remember how He created all this? Let there be. So God didn't take the seventh day to rest because He was worn out. He took the seventh day for several reasons. First of all, the work was finished. We don't have time to go in there this morning, but if you go over into Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about that Sabbath rest is what grace is all about. Because it represents the season you and I are supposed to be in where we rest from our works our works representing all our good deeds to make God pleased with us, all the good things we do so that God's going to love us and we're going to get into heaven. The Bible says that, 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 that Jesus came to pay for your sins. He came to deliver you from your sin. He came to pay the price for everything, every violation of these Ten Commandments. He came and paid for every one of those so He could give you His righteousness, which, by the way, He earned by perfectly keeping every one of them. He could give that to you and to me and once that becomes real to us then we're supposed to sit back and rest from all our striving to be acceptable to God. So the rest of the seventh day represents to the church that entering into the rest from striving from our own efforts to get somewhere with God, to be pleasing to God, to enter into His rest. But there's another purpose behind it. God is declaring here a pattern for our lives. The reason the week is seven days has a purpose to it. Because he says in six days you shall work and the seventh day you shall rest. Now I'm not going to stand here because I can't convince myself or you from scriptures that that means you and I have to take Sunday and do this. But here's what it does tell me. I need to have a regular period of rest where I don't work. And you need to have a regular period where you know you're going to rest and not work. Why? Several reasons. First of all, resting is a time of restoring. We live in a culture, especially in this part of our country, where everything's just driven. And now that we have all these handheld devices and computers and iPads and all this stuff... People, news, have access to us 24 hours a day. And people are expecting you to respond to them immediately, whether it's work or family or all these situations. And we're just like trained animals. We just respond. I remember sitting in one of the partner's offices I work for, and I'd be in the middle of this important discussion. I'm trying to understand something. The phone rang and he immediately answered it. And he's a partner. He doesn't have to do that. He needs to, ought to find out who it is. And whether he needs to answer it now. But he was so tied to that. But then again, I get like that with my phone. A text comes, I pick it up, we're check. Has anybody texted me lately? Has anybody sent me an email lately? It's like you almost get hooked on this need for that information. And as a result, even when we're resting, we're not resting. So one of the reasons God ordained a rest is he knows us. He knows us that we need physical rest. He knows us we need emotional rest. He knows that we need spiritual rest. Spiritual rest isn't taking a break from your Bible and prayer. Spiritual rest is a ceasing from striving. And here's the the hardest part of it, because God knows us. Not only do we need rest, it's humbling to find out that if you take a day off, the world goes on. I discovered that if I take a day off, the church still functions. The kingdom of God actually is able to operate without me for a day or you for a day. What that tells me is I may not be quite as important as I think I am. I remember a doctor, my doctor, years ago when I was practicing law, kept after me because my blood pressure was up and, you know, he, said, he says, you're, 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 you know, you're stressed. I said, what do you mean I'm stressed? <laughs> he says, John, I want to tell you a story. I had a good friend of mine that was a surgeon. He was the best surgeon I know. And everybody, we sent people to him because he was such a good surgeon. And he was, he was so dedicated that he would take any case 24 hours a day. He said, last Friday, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Monday, his patients all found another doctor. He wasn't quite as essential to them as he thought he was. In Deuteronomy 7 and 8, God goes back over some of these through, Moses goes back over some of these to explain what some of these were about. And he said, God was training you He's talking to the next generation, the one that entered into the promised land. He's telling them what the first generation, their parents, missed. He says, God was training you to humble you and make you hungry. Now, He didn't starve them. He gave them manna that came from heaven, dropped the dew that dropped every morning. And when they got frustrated and upset, He gave them quail to eat. But God gave them to them on this pattern. He says, every day you'll go out in the morning and you'll collect what you need for one day. If you collect for two days, the extra amount will rot. It won't even make it till tomorrow. So every day you've got to get up and you've got to believe that I'm going to be there and provide your food for you that day. Give us today our daily bread. He said, however, on the sixth day, on that day you shall collect two days' worth, because on the seventh day, the Sabbath rest, you shall not go out and collect any, and this time the second amount will survive for the next day. And God was training them, he goes on to say, to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to have a time on a very regular basis and if you can't plan a regular basis you need to plan it on a weekly basis so you know it's going to get done when you take a day off where you rest I'm not going to tell you what to do with it or not to do with it but the principle is to rest physically rest emotionally rest and get restored you can do it with your family You know how you do this is between you and God there's legalism to tell you how you got to do it. You need to understand the principle. And notice it says in Genesis, He sanctified it. He made it holy. So what in the world's eyes looks like a waste of time? We're time-driven. We've, got to have, we've only got 24 hours a day. There's only seven days a week. We've got to get all these things done, all these things done, all these things done. And we get so busy, it's hard to be alone with God. I've told you over and over again, It was easier for me to spend time with God during my week when I practiced law than I came to work here. And that sounds crazy. But I get in here and I'm looking, you know what, that ought to be this. And now I'm looking at all this construction. I can't pray in here until this is all done. Because I'm looking at this, you know, we ought to do this over here. We ought to do this over here. I'm working. Instead of sitting here, spending time with God. Just listening. Being open. Psalms say, be still and know that I am God. We can't truly know that He is our God unless we have times where we're just still with Him. Now, what that means to you, I'll let you decide. But if you don't schedule it, everything else is going to come first. God sanctified it. Sanctified it. Made it holy. And look what we do with it. We treat it as common. Well, it's like any other day we can do whatever we want with. And I'm not telling you what to do with it. I'm telling you, you need to take it, and I do too, and examine it and look at it. Am I really treating a day, sometime with God, as holy? It's between God and me. And that doesn't mean you can't do things. You know, what it is is you, but you've got to, it starts by recognizing I can't just run straight through everything because then we slip God in somewhere when we have to. Instead of saying, this is all about... This. These all are tied into the first commandment. All right, the last one. These first four deal with our relationship with God. Well, we'll start there. These first four deal with our relationship with God. Because the next six start dealing with our relationships with others, starting with our parents. But it all comes back to the founding one. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. Everything that I'm telling you is based on who I am. Keeping the Sabbath holy is based on who I am. Not having any other gods is based on who God is. Not worshiping idols is based on who God is. Not taking His name in vain is all based on who God is. The root of all of this is a recognition God is my creator. Every breath I breathe every beat of my heart. My life itself is a gift from Him. By His grace and by His mercy, I'm alive. My life belongs to Him because I didn't create it. How do I have a right to treat it as mine by myself if it's not something I created? Not only did He create me, He sustains me. Not only does He sustain me, what we're going to find out when we get into the other side is He's lavished His grace upon me. He's lavished His love upon me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and stand without blame before Him in His love. Having predestined, planned ahead that we would be adopted as children to the praise of the glory of His will, to the call to the good and kind intentions of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved.